when I first started being on Twitter, I um, it was it was completely a new kind of environment for me. And over time, I learned that you could develop real relationships on mm. social media. And uh, first, you could really tell a lot about a, a person, just their their personality does come through. And um, I thought it was strange at first that you could actually um, form connections, but it makes sense because we're all kind of there with a liked commonality, you know, so um, it's kind of the new norm. Yeah. Yeah. What I found uh, found quite interesting to see is um, that there are some people that um, like can connect their actual personality or like presentation in person with what they write or, or tweet or whatever but some people it's it's a bit strange so if you meet some people sometimes it's a bit awkward because you had a completely different expectation <laughs> how they are um, but still if you're open and uh, positive about it it can be even quite funny uh, to uh, like challenge your own stereotypes what you have when you read something <laughs> that's true you bring up a good point there are going to be people that can can use that format to express themselves and that comes across mm. it's true and then I think still a lot of people are very um, nervous and they feel like they'll they might say the wrong thing you know but I I and maybe I'm jumping ahead but I always say just be yourself yeah so that's awesome yeah 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 that's that's true that's true um, but maybe for a start, for those who may not know you that well, uh, who you are and what you do, um, can you maybe just introduce yourself a little bit, what you do, um, how you, obviously we talk about medicine, so what what your career so far was and, and how you came about to be a doctor, a physician? Sure. But before we go any further, I see we have another friend, and Claire, I haven't uh, met you. Yeah, no, hi, hi, I'm Claire. I co-chair the EVMG trainee committee with Nico, but um, despite his persistence that I should tweet more, I'm still significantly less active on Twitter than Nico. I'm more an observer, apart from... Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it was very nice to meet you. And you. So... Um, my my story is is kind of the opposite of yours, Nico. Which is I, my father was a physician and he was an infectious disease doctor, and um, he was one of the first HIV and AIDS physicians in South Florida, and um, I was always by his side. I was always around him. He um he was he worked very hard. He both had clinics and worked in the hospital. And I spent, you know, after school in the office. And sometimes I, I was put to work doing filing, you know, in the old days when there was filing. And, um, and he would actually let, I would go with him to the hospital and I would sit at the nursing station while he made his rounds. Um, so he, he was the most, the biggest influence in my life. And I loved, how he connected his huge brain and his love for medicine with um, his people skills. And he was a, he, he told good jokes and he was a hugger 
And he sat on patients' beds and he talked to them. And I just wanted to do what he did. I just thought that there was nothing better than that. Um, so, you know, I always joked around though that he was so lucky that I wanted to be a doctor as much as he wanted me to be a doctor. Because I'm the firstborn, and yes, he, he was excited for me to do that. And I, I am proud that I was raised with um, a father figure that saw no boundaries as a young woman, right? So like the sky was the limit for me. He didn't see that. And so um, when, I, when I went to medical school, though, I, I actually stumbled upon pathology without really realizing that that was going to happen. And I fell in love with the histology course, and I really liked pathology in general and understanding the mechanism of disease and how it was taught. And I found that the pathology teachers were the best. And I was a tutor. Um, and I just thought, I really, really like this area. Hmm. Um, so then jump to your clinical rotations, I made sure that my first few clinical rotations were in pathology. Um, so many people in early medical school and even my own father was like, I don't get it. You like people, you're so good with people, uh, pathology, you know? So in fact, you know, my father's dream was that I would be an oncologist. That's what he saw, yeah? Mm. So, um, but I, I just really liked the microscope and um, being able to help in that, in that area in the diagnostic elements. So in my clinical rotations, I did, I did confirm that that's what I love to do. And when I teach trainees to kind of figure out what you wanna do in life, you may follow your heart. And uh, when you're in a rotation, and you keep wanting to gravitate back to something else, that's when you know it's the right thing for you. So when I was on my OB rotation and all I wanted to do was see what that um, endometrial curatage looked like under the microscope or kind of relate what I was doing back, I knew, yes, this is really what I wanna be doing um, and vice versa, which is you could be like, I don't, I don't really like this. And so you know that that's not what meant for you to be doing. Mm. So um, I actually took six years off between med school and residency to raise a family. So I had two children in medical school and then three children outside of medical school and my last child on my first year of residency. So I think I have a little bit of a unique journey and I am so grateful for those years that I had in just kind of focusing on establishing my family because now I was able to then go back and kind of do what I needed to do to finish what I started. And um, when I started my first year of medical school, I mean, residency, again, I, I, I'm, I'm almost gonna be a mother of six. And I said to myself, Daniela, you got to finish what you started. And all I want to do is just be a good doctor. I, I want to be a mom and a wife, and I want to have my profession, but that's what I was looking to do. Um, but it's funny, like that, it's not always exactly what happens. And um, my 12th month of my first year, last month of year one, 
I was on the blood bank rotation. And again, completely unexpected, but I was not so much familiar with blood banking, so to speak. I really wasn't, but I found it marvelous. I thought it was absolutely extraordinary. First, I love the blood bank. It's this very unique environment where you have um, an intensity to it and a calm, and you have old school um, testing done in test tubes. And um, it's a place very different than other areas of pathology, which is it's therapeutic driven, whereas other areas of pathology are diagnostic driven. And I found that to be something I really attached to. And then, of course, I was brought back to the floors. And that's because transfusion medicine covers apheresis. And I had to take care of patients and manage procedures involving blood products. And there was really... I needed that part. And my dad was right all along. I did need to have the patient part. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, my father passed away right before I started residency, but he knew that I got accepted for my residency. <laughs> so he was very proud of me, but it has been kind of difficult that I have all these exciting things happen in my life. And, you, you know, there's certain people that you want to just share it with, but I know that I am sure I know it. But anyhow, I, um, I just thought, first of all, this apheresis machine, that it could remove whole blood, separate it into its parts, return the good parts, take away the bad. What, am I in a sci-fi Like what is, this is incredible. Mm. And then also I got to, again, meet these patients, get to know them, have relationships with them, get to know their families. And what's amazing in, in transfusion medicine is that I had to attend procedures that again, were very unique and rare. So usually we're the first to meet the patient and we have a very short spurt of interaction, kind of like the ICU. Mm. And that was very special. So it took a lot of education. We're here because you may have this condition that's causing all of your platelets to stick together, okay? We are doing further testing. You know, we probably are gonna do this until this point in time. And it's very scary for individuals. So to have that ability to interact and, and have those conversations and follow them up and then boom, you're out, you're out of their life, God willing, until the next TTP relapse. No, but I hope not. <laughs> so um, that, again, was kind of a, a curveball that I didn't expect, but I happen to be the kind of person that follows my heart, and I then said, I'm going to pursue transfusion medicine. Um, so my training is in anatomic and clinical pathology. I'm not sure if you have a similar trajectory in Europe in terms of pathology residency, but um, transfusion medicine is actually under the umbrella of what we call clinical pathology, also known as laboratory medicine. Mm -hmm. So going into pathology, I imagined I would be a classic anatomic pathologist, someone who takes a biopsy or a piece of tissue makes that diagnosis, but I ended up being someone more in laboratory medicine and transfusion medicine. So um, because I'm anchored to St. Louis with my family, I really could not leave 
St. Louis to pursue a fellowship. And I realized I had to have a plan B if I wasn't going to be able to do a fellowship in transfusion medicine. However, in my third year of residency, we had a new transfusion medicine medical director come to our academic center. And a few days before he started, I said, Dr. Blackall, would you ever consider starting a fellowship? And he looked and he said, yeah, I would. I've done it before. And thank God, I'm so grateful to him. He helped to establish a fellowship program at SLU and I, and I was able to stay at SLU and, and complete, like, complete my fellowship. I didn't have to leave St. Louis or do something that was really plan B. So I finished my fellowship. I had tremendous training from Dr. Blackall. And what's funny is I recently posted a tweet that said, have you guys ever considered your, your, um, you know, your training lineage? You know, and so you know, I kind of, I'm proud of my, my lineage, so to speak. Um, and then I was very blessed that I stayed on to be Dr. Blackall's a partner as an assistant medical director. And then he actually left SLU and then I became medical director. Mm. So I was very, very blessed to be able to train and uh, stay on at the institution. Um, and then recently I was asked to come over to the blood center side as chief medical officer of Impact Life. And so I'm very grateful. I almost feel like I was catapulted to a few different layers. And um, I've just enjoying so much this profession. Um, I also stayed on as an assistant professor of pathology and I teach the introduction to pathology course to round out and my love for teaching. So kind of like going back to that ground zero of like being so and admiring so much this pathology course, it was a dream of mine. One day I'm gonna <laughs> teach this and here I am. So I hope that gave you a little insight to who I am and where I came from. Absolutely. Wow. It's an incredible story. And actually, it's really interesting to hear um, just how different the training pathways are. So here in the UK, um, transfusion medicine forms within falls within the branch of haematology. But then our haematology here actually is heme path and the malignant side, which I think is different to everywhere else in Europe and things. And it just it's the different training that people have to end up where they are and how like similar roles can be very different in different healthcare systems. So just for a bit of scope, obviously the US is a huge country. Would each institution have a like a transfusion, a transfusion director sort of thing whose job would be primarily transfusion related? Yeah, that's a great question because it comes up when um trainees or even med students say, what can I do with that training? Mm. So, um, you know, when you have, a, when you're a specialist in transfusion medicine, yeah, you can, and at an academic center, there's enough work to actually be a medical director of transfusion services. For me, I covered transfusion medicine. So the blood bank of both the adult kids hospital but I also oversaw hematology and coagulation and the laboratory front. And that is, I think, 
consistent with other academic transfusion medicine specialists kind of, you know, dabbling in both, both areas of the lab. Um, and then plus or minus, you would be overseeing apheresis, and that could be subdivided into clinical therapeutics plus cellular therapy. So at my institution, I oversaw clinical therapeutic apheresis where my colleague oversaw cell therapy, and that included ECP. Now, there are also individuals with transfusion medicine backgrounds, but also do anatomic pathology, and at smaller community-sized hospitals, they do anatomic pathology mostly 90% of their time, but they're also responsible for the, the clinical laboratory. And so a background in transfusion medicine goes a long way in that area because most of your clinical pathology um, challenges, issues, consults really fall in blood banking. Mm. And well, the in, in in Germany, I think it's it's quite it's quite the same that we, but it's somehow divided. So for now, with with the whole CAR T thing, it became more apparent. Everyone talks about apheresis now, um, and never never have heard of that term before. Maybe most of them. Um, in Germany, it's um, you have these transfusion doctors who are hematologists, but um, people who are mainly focused on apheresis or, or blood products um, are more lab laboratory med um, medicine mm -hmm. um, doctors. So, um, but I, I, th I always, I think it's, it's the same with you. I, al I always find this quite interesting where an area is where people like intermingle. And, and need to, uh, but work on the same, about the same problem. So um, what I really, really like is um, because that's, I think, quite unique and important message is because you had something, it was your decision. You, you took always the decision. You want to have your family, but you also want to do, um, you want to be a good doctor and you want to do maybe a fellowship and ask for it. I think that's uh, that's quite an import, important message and really, really, really good. I mean, it, it feels so so good to see that because many, I think being a trainee is often uh, considered to have a mentor and follow this mentor. But no, you also have to have your visions and try to to develop this on your own. If And if you find some help, that's good. But um, you, you need to trust yourself somehow a little bit also. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah, because during my residency training, um, the transfusion medicine specialist role was um, unoccupied. So I, I called myself an orphan for some time. And so I reached out to ABB and I did get some mentorship. That's, are you guys familiar with ABB? It's, it's the mm -hmm. United States. Um, it's really international, but it's sort of our transfusion medicine organization. And I, and I was um, attached to a mentor. Her name is Nancy Dunbar and she was phenomenal. And for a year, every month we would talk and it was very valuable because again, I was a little scared about how I was very excited for this field, but I, I didn't really know exactly how to pursue it. And she talked with me and she also provided me with opportunities within the organization. That made me feel very special. And that again, continued to solidify. But to your point, Nico, and that's something I also try to convey to, to trainees is that everyone may have their own path. 
and that there isn't one way to get to some place and that um you know that 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 if a person um has certain needs you know that they should take them seriously and uh, i do have a um i'm sorry to, to kind of maybe this isn't part of the conversation but i do have a dream one day and um you know, for me, I felt like as a woman, I was able to spend the time I needed that was valuable to me um, at home. And it would be a dream of mine to create a, some, a, a paradigm for other women to, to like be able to do some training, take a break, and then be able to continue on at a time when they don't have to worry about a certain period of their life you know, because there is this push. And um, when I was a med student, even earlier, I, I would meet with a lot of female physicians and I'd say, so how do you do it? How do you become a doctor and a mother? And I heard over and over again, you know, don't make the mistake I did and wait to have children. And that scared me. So um, I didn't. And I didn't want to because that to me from a very early period of my life was very important to me and um so i i just i i wish that we could also create and i think europe is much better at this than america but kind of creating this very special culture and model and paradigm to allow women and, and possibly men i think women because you know they have this time period where where they it's restricted um, that that it could provide this um, this special you know ability to kind of do it all. Why not? Mm -hmm. And what were the challenging things? So obviously you had the time out and you had your six children, and then obviously you're going through a, a process where you're still training to to do what you want to do. And there are exams and things that mm -hmm. come alongside that. How did you balance it all? So um, I started drinking coffee at age 30. I realized, and when I started coffee, I was like, this is incredible. Like, why didn't I do this before? So, you know, while you're, you know, have these young children and trying to make the time, like I definitely think you have to have the energy and the determination and the discipline to make sure. Um, while I was in those six years outside of, you know, a, a proper formal training, I started a educational platform in wellness and nutrition. And I also um, maintain relationship with, with St. Louis University and I would attend pathology um, seminars and um, some of their conferences so that I was keeping my big toe in to some extent and so that it, it helped me so that it wasn't completely you know like being out of it mm -hmm. um the first year was hard though going back I think not hard because of my mind and the intellectual it was harder because my life changed so much mm -hmm. wow and so you have to really set your life up for yeah. both places yeah well but some somehow I, i'm i'm completely agree but i'm because you alluded to europe at least in germany it feels somehow that there is uh, and and you also said it is there's this pressure to do everything 
to not lose any time and to do it right, right? Mm -hmm. And there is not what you said. There is always give people the freedom to do what they want. Some people don't want uh, the the right path. They want their own one. And um, in, specifically in, in Germany, there is this push um, and this quite harsh tone even for young colleagues to like, okay, you have a you need to have a plan. You need to be finished at 30 or whatever. And then because you, you don't want to lose time at all. Otherwise, you won't get a position at any time in your future. So I think that's a horrible, horrible uh yeah future to to look out to for for young people i i don't i don't like this at all <laughs> yeah and it's so like puts you in a box yeah. yeah i think what you've done is incredible an amazing example as well to yeah. everyone out there because the thing is like to take a decision like that at the age you were and think you never get those years back so if you do if you are someone who feels pressure to go straight on to get the position to achieve all of this at such a young age you'll probably you could run the risk then of getting to an age where you've sort of missed out on the opportunities to have families and things like that so I think just knowing what you wanted and saying no I'm stopping doing this and then I think people sometimes try and plan too much and you can't really plan things like that yeah, absolutely, Claire. But I'm not going to lie to you. When I go to an interview, I'm not putting all that on the table. Yeah. You know, <laughs> by the way, I'm a mom of six. You know, no. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's like what that is, but um, yeah. So doing what is right for you, but at the same time, you know, pushing a professionalism and, and, and trying to get yourself to where you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, but um, maybe um, to change it where we are now, because I don't know with, what the situation in, in the US is, but in, in Germany, or I think in Europe as well, is when it comes to blood transfusion, blood banking, it's always horror. We don't have a lot of uh, blood. We don't have a lot of donors. We don't, um, everything needs, is, is in a hurry. Um, if I call my my colleagues from the Ephesus team, it's all they are always a bit like, well, okay, when do you need your product? And it's always this kind. What what do you think um, is the main challenge at the moment uh, in in your specialty, and how maybe it even developed when you when you began? Was it completely different? Um, yeah, to to give us a little bit an overview what what the main challenges in your field are right now. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that we're having some trouble filling fellowship spots. So that has that domino effect of making sure that hospitals are covered. And um, I think you're saying that you're experiencing that probably in Germany and other countries as well. Um, so we also have challenges at the laboratory level, you know, filling um, laboratory technologists, laboratory medical scientists. There are a lot of people who are retiring that have this incredible amount of information and have been experts in the field. And now because of the decrease in numbers of people that can run a lab, there's a lot more um, 
we call it cross-training, so you don't have that level of expertise as well. So just trying to figure out how we're going to just keep blood banks and labs afloat is a, a challenge, I'm going to say, in the United States. Um, I am a half glass full kind of person. <laughs> so to me, you know, I, 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 I'm, I kind of emphasize though on, on the amazing things that are happening in our field though. And there are a lot of people that, are, that see these challenges and are starting to try to invest in building more educational platforms and thinking, how do we expand our transfusion medicine candidates? Let's not just focus on pathologists. Let's think about hematologists. Let's think about anesthesiologists. So with the challenge, it may be that we come up with a really great solution or it brings a new mix of, of ideas. Mm -hmm. But that is something that we are experiencing currently right now. Mm -hmm. You talked about inventory shortages. Um, I think that we have a challenge with the change in donor age, donor culture. Um, and I don't really know what to, to think about it yet. Um, you know, we're in right now in the United States, um, more so of an altruistic donor culture, meaning people donate blood for free. They donate because they volunteer to do that. But we have a, an aging population that um, and perhaps as people in, in the younger generations, we have to recruit using different ways and using a paid model. And um, we're all trying to figure out if that's okay. And uh, so these are kind of the things that are on the table right now, just being able to maintain blood on the shelf. Mm. Yeah, we've just come off the back of uh, a national like big red alert in that the um, the the NHSBT were at critically low levels of blood supply. So um, there were every hospital had to try and like ration and actually um, it was a good way to educate the wider communities about things like patient blood management. But one of the major problems that we have here in the UK, particularly with the whole with the altruistic model that you talk of um, is the discrepancy. So one of our big, our biggest users of blood products um, are our like sickle hemoglobinopathy population and they require um, extended phenotype matching and things like that and tend to have these blood groups that wouldn't necessarily reflect the majority of our UK donors. And so we, particularly for those populations we often run really short do you find similar sort of situation in the US and oh yeah any novel ideas of how we might make that better yeah so in terms of being able to provide sickle cell disease patients with the best blood products I think in general in the United States because I just put out a, a poll on this which is amazing Claire that you asked um, how, how do, and, and really the polls, they go to, on a global level, but I, I happen to notice a lot of Americans did, did respond. So what is your policy in providing extended phenotypically matched to sickle cell? 
So it looks like for the most part, people follow ASH guidelines that are saying at a minimum, you want to be able to match C, E, and, and big K. I would like to take that actually one step before, and I think all sickle cell patients should be molecularly genotyped, okay? So that should be step one. Step two is after that, all sickle cell patients should be then phenotypically matched for big C, big E, and big K, if that's appropriate. And then the question is, if a patient begins to alloimmunize, whether it's for the big C, big E, big K, or anything else, should you then provide antigen negative blood or phenotypically match them and extend it to, to the fullest? And I think that that's where the difference in, in opinion comes. And, be, and, that, and the reason is because I don't think it's very clear cut. There are some of these sickle cell patients, some individuals who become hyper-responsive and it doesn't matter how well you match them, and some don't. They just develop one or two antibodies, and it's fine to, to provide them with the blood that they alloimmunize. But then the second question is, is should we be matching them to the antigenic level? And that requires what we would say premium blood. And that's antigenically matching them to donors that are probably ethnically very similar. And so that could be a place where we might need to pay, you know? Um, and so is that wrong? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Mm. Yes. Mm. <clears throat> well, and we have here, um... I think in general, the paid model. So people come to the uh, blood bank and then they get, I don't know, I think 50 euros or something for, wow. for one donation. And uh, for plasma, um, I think it's even 70, 70 euros. Mm. And they get a free lunch and everything. Everything is fine. <laughs> um, but still, we have a lot of shortages. And, and I experienced that in, in transplantation. Um, we have every time we have this red, red uh, sentence, we have a shortage and only transplanted patients uh, receive um, blood products. And, and then, but then there comes a point when you have a thrombopenic patient who is refractory to, let's say, normal platelets, and then you ask for HLA matched platelets and i wanted to ask you whether you have experience with that because in my experience observation i don't think it's really really that helpful and it costs a lot of money and it's a lot of effort for everyone to to organize these things um do you have any experience with that and what what do you think of it i totally hear you nico so you have a patient who presents with something like platelet refractoriness and could be immunogenic, non-immunogenic. And uh, based on their situation, you might say, I wanna work this patient up for possibly immunogenic causes. And when you do, you find that they make anti-HLA antibodies. So with that information, you should probably provide them with HLA matched. And I have found like you that it's sort of feels something like voodoo medicine. Because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then you give them a shelf platelet and it worked. And then you gave them this fancy platelet and it did nothing. 
Exactly. <laughs> I, I, and, and it takes tremendous coordination. So from the blood bank side, we would do the testing. We would coordinate with the blood sensor. Now I'm on the blood sensor side. And then we would recruit the donor and we would, you know, we would monitor the, the increments and bring that donor back if it worked and, and, and kind of defer them, you know, if it didn't. Mm. Um, there are other mechanisms that we could be using, such as the cross match platelet. It's, uh, are you familiar with that? that um, we, we don't use it uh, usually, but um, I heard of it, yeah. That to me would be the first line. Um, but but I, I agree with you. And, and it could be that we're missing some mechanism there. I mean, it makes sense, the immunogenic HLA or anti-HPA. And, and we do look for those things. And sometimes that there's a correlation there and sometimes it's not. And it takes a tremendous amount of coordination and possibly even money because you're paying for that, like we're saying, premier premium blood product. So um, maybe there's more that we have to understand in that area. But the cross match to me is really the best way to go because that at, like, at least allows you even to use a shelf platelet. Mm -hmm. And what do you think of, um, I mean, it's, uh, at, at least for me, I, I noticed that it's a big topic and there was um, recent blood paper about it. And because obviously that's the goal to keep us uh, not talking anymore about shortages uh, to produce our own blood in the lab. So uh, what, what do you think, what, what is the latest status and what do you think, uh, how far can we go with that? Wow, you know, for me, it's very exciting. Um, I asked one of my, my current mentors, um, who's, you know, about 30 years my senior, what do you think? Are we gonna shut down? Like, is a donor center gonna, like, do we even need people anymore? And she said to me, you know, Daniela, when I was at your, at your stage, you know, um, I was, I thought the same thing for synthetic blood products. They were, they were going to come in, they were going to make them, they were, and then there was going to be no need for, for volunteer donors anymore, but we're 30 years later and you see. Yeah. So the funny thing is she said the same thing is sort of, she sees, you know, a correlation with this, you know, farm fresh blood. I don't know if I see it that way. I think that we are in a different state where science and technology can can grow exponentially. And we can take, so, you know, the big question is, can we commercialize this? Is it only gonna be used to create reagents or can we really make this into something where we're hanging, you know, we're making blood products by the thousands. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna take mass scaling. So can we turn to Microsoft and ask, How do you take a laptop and make it available on a global level? Maybe we need to turn to some of those people and say, how do you do it? It was brought to my attention, and this is where, you know, my rose-colored glasses is, oh, I hate to say this, but maybe there are people that don't want this to happen. Maybe it will hurt other areas of industry. I don't know. But um, someone brought that to my attention recently, and I was like, oh, that's so sad to think about. Mm. But um, I think it is so exhilarating, you know? So I I'm, I'm going to be keeping my eye on it. And in fact, 
Um, I do this similar kind of podcast thing on, on Twitter space called Education Baristas. And, and in January, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Toy, who's the lead of the, of the Restore trial. Because mm. I'd love to hear his journey and, uh, you know, just more about what they're doing and the science behind it. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. And we'll have to tune in in January to hear all. <laughs> we'll trade <laughs> and um, when, when, we, when we go on, so you have a wonderful blog, which, uh, which, is, which is really, 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 really lovely. And um, how, how did you come about to, to create this education? How, how did it all start? Um, you on Twitter? Yeah. So I, I never used social media before 2017. It wasn't until I went to an ABB meeting, there was this whole hype about you got to use Twitter. And I was like, how do you use Twitter in science? Like how that is so weird. But um, when I got back to St. Louis, um, I was studying for my uh, pathology board exam and there was all this hype in my field use twitter you'll learn pathology and i thought that's interesting i'm curious so i started an account and i was i was kind of blown away by the content and so i entered into twitter from a pathology lens and i entered it when i was a fourth year resident trying to study for my boards and learn really cool cases and there's this really beautiful how would you say it? Group committee organization on Twitter called the Path Tweet Award. And this is a group of individuals that scurries pathology Twitter and will give in a will, will collate all the best tweets of the week. And this really helps to elevate the content in pathology Twitter. And what happened was um, I started getting involved and started to create my own content. And I filled a niche of, of blood banking that really didn't exist because most pathologists were tweeting about anatomic pathology cases. So I started to add to that and do transfusion medicine and blood banking. Um, now it was actually a a very good friend of mine, a colleague that I met on Twitter, her name is Sylvia Benjamin. And she many years ago actually coined the word blood education. So I then started using that word mm. and cause I loved it and uh, it just sort of took off. Mm. Um, so blood education is the hashtag for anything involving medical education in the field of transfusion medicine. Yeah. So I kind of started to add that to my tweets and kind of just filled in a niche of mm. knowledge that was needed in, in our unique area. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for me, pathology in general, I think is one, one of the greatest things to follow because it's so, it's so, let's say, easy to create content with it because you have a lot of pictures and you can follow up with these questions. Um, I'm not at the at the stage now where I can use that for exams. That's uh, sometime in the future. But uh, Claire also told me that she used uh, these kinds of things like uh, threads and everything, uh, because it's if it's done perfectly, 
Um, I think it's it's much better than any uh, multiple choice test you you could have had in, in med school, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I credit <laughs> you and things like this for getting me through my FRC path exams a few years ago. Um, I think just as well, the accessibility of it, you don't necessarily feel, oh, I'm going to sit down and study now for a few hours. You can literally be sat on a train just flicking through. And I think that's almost when you remember things more like little snippets of things that you can access anywhere. It's really, really helpful. I agree. And it can help you personalize your learning. Um, I just read this gorgeous tutorial this morning that was on, on DOACs. It was written by a pharmacologist. Mm. And so, I mean, also, I don't have access to pharmacologists very, very readily available to me. And he wrote, and it was very easy to read. I'll send it to you guys and, and funny, you know, so it has videos and it has GIFs. And so it, it, it just, it feels good to learn from them. It makes yeah. it fun. Learning has to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of, um, what's it called like these 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 minutes you know these uh where you where you just um smile and but it's also serious so it's it's a right a right combination and um what i sometimes have the fear is that this evolves into like awkward moments at meetings where people try to tr translate this into a presentation and and then it's always a bit awkward and cringe moment because I think because of this unique profile, it needs to stay on that on that platform. You cannot um, like easily translate this into into a twenty minute presentation at Ash, for instance. That's uh, you need to be careful with that. I think. <laughs> Although I have condensed a conference or a, mm -hmm. a learning seminar and took the main points from it yeah i think it can be condensed but also i said learning is fun but nico just put together a tutorial that i wouldn't call it fun it was beautiful and inspiring and and um so there's so many different elements to to project you know um Yes, fun and silly and goofy, but there's also ways to be serious and impactful and meaningful. Well, yeah. well, I'm I'm a German, so we we always <laughs> live with with a heavy toe and with a, a certain moment of sadness or whatever. But yeah, I, I thank you very much for for that. Um, but let's maybe wrap it up with um your what what do you think what do you want to give your children do you uh, do you want to be to also make them being a doctor or, or... oh my gosh yes i try to um brainwash them every day uh, <laughs> i don't think any of them have really taken the bait yet um my no it's it, it it's something i don't know what it is it's kind of when you love something you want your children to do it but um you know, and also I think that when you see the right combination of skills, which is compassion and love for other human beings, plus a brain that can handle that, that kind of content, that combination is, is great. Although other people, there's other professions that can do that too. Um, 
No, I, I don't, I'm not sure any of my children will, but I have to share with you, Claire, you'll love this. I have two sons and four daughters and my two sons both want to marry doctors. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I can live with that. And I think I've done my job that Mm -hmm. my own sons think that, you know, it's a great thing to marry a doctor and that yeah, a, a could, female is, you know, is, can be the doctor in the, in the house. So why, why is that? Is that like a, why, what's the impetus? <laughs> I think they I, could, I, yeah, sorry, they could go do a lot worse. <laughs> well, I think they, mm. they do love the fact that their mom is a doctor. Mm. Um, I think that they've seen the, the value of it and they see that I love it. And so it adds to the home. And um, I, I don't want to say they want to marry their mother, but they, <laughs> they would marry a doctor or yeah. they think that, you know, being married, to, you know, because, um, you know, growing up, you would always say, marry a doctor, marry a doctor, you know, well, a, a woman should marry, you know, but um, uh, so there's, I, I'm Jewish. And so you want to say you want to marry a nice Jewish doctor. So my son <laughs> now will marry a nice Jewish doctor. So the, the, the tables have turned. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I've, I've never heard it, but it, it sounds, uh, it sounds wonderful. And um, um, we, we couldn't be more grateful that you shared your time with us and, and your stories. Um, really, uh, really, really inspiring. I'm, I'm, I'm still inspired. And I, I think that as well. Absolutely. And, um, and I really, what, what I love really is uh, that you find people you never met and it's somehow you're somehow hooked uh i don't want to uh, like uh, compete with your husband but um it's um really really it's really inspiring thank you thank you for your stories and thank you for your time it's my pleasure thank you for asking me to speak with you today it's like just growing our friendship so it's so nice to me it's like um you know the modern day version of a pen pal and so now we get yeah. to meet each other and, and and continue that friendship if you're ever in st louis you're always invited to my house for what a nice meal i would love to have you over oh thank you thank you very much um thank you for your for your time and have a great day thank you and, nice and hopefully speak you and follow you soon Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> bye. Bye. See you. Bye bye. bye.